reading is from 1 Corinthians, and it's a lot of different verses. So if you want to follow along, it's on page 6 in your bulletin. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and, is he, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as, an, as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as to who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you but that you might live in a right way in an undivided devotion to the Lord. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. 
in my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Jack of all trades, Miranda, right? Uh, stuffing Easter eggs and reading scripture. It's a joy to have people participating in our community in a variety of fashions. Today, this morning, we are uh, on 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in our chapter-by-chapter chapter study of this book. It's a long chapter, and so for the sake of length and time, uh, we shortened it a little bit. And even as much as we've done that, we won't be able to cover every last detail of this quite complex passage, but we're going to pray that God gives us a few key lessons for us to take into our hearts and lives. And so let's pray together and let's do that. Thank you, Jesus, so much for giving us your word. We acknowledge that your word is uh, a word from beyond us, straight from the mind and the heart of God. It often says things that we would never say to ourselves or to one another, but that's because your ways are higher than our ways and thoughts higher than our thoughts. But we also know because it's a, a word out of this world, from out of this world literally, it's also a word that has power to save us. You have the power to save us. You have the power to change us. So would you do that even now in this time as we study this chapter Give us your Holy Spirit. Weave through every one of our hearts and every part of this text. Draw our attention to what we need to know and need to hear in this particular moment. And so we give ourselves to you. And I ask that you would help me, that you would make this time fruitful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, after a couple of years after getting married... Uh, Paula asked me a, a, a sort of a tough question. She asked me, I think for the first time, whether I had gotten cold feet just before our wedding. And, uh, you know, it went something like this. Did you, second guess, did you ever second guess your decision to marry me at the last second? Kind of like how that happens to some guys. And I told her no, because that was the truth. I told her no. And I, 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 I mean, why would I tell her otherwise, right? And then I explained, see, I forced myself not to think about that at all. I didn't want to ask myself that question because I was sure of that decision. And so I sort of cleared my mind of any thoughts and feelings about you so that I wouldn't really have second thoughts. And she replied, how romantic. <laughs> I've said a few lame things over the years in my marriage. Sometimes I can be a, a fool of a husband. I was a fool of a single man for over 30 years as well, too, which is why I personally, I don't know about you, but continue to appreciate any kind of truth and wisdom that the Bible can offer me on the grand topic of singleness and marriage, which is the central theme of our passage Today, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to dive right in. You might have noticed, as you heard the passage read a moment ago, that Paul is responding to some kind of a letter 
that the Corinthian church had written to him. As it says in verse 1, Now for the matters you, what, wrote about. He's responding to their letter, and immediately he quotes what appears to have been a popular slogan in the church. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Don't miss the quotation marks there. Those are not Paul's words. He's quoting the Corinthians' words. But what's that all about? Well, as we saw last week, some of the Corinthians had begun to believe that all that really mattered in life were quote-unquote spiritual things. Our faith, our feelings, our thoughts, our knowledge about God. By contrast, they began to believe the physical things of this world, including our physical bodies, are inferior. They're worthless. I mean, it all eventually rots, so how valuable could it really be? And because of this mistaken view of the world, as we saw last week in chapter 6, here's what some people began to conclude. Well, if my body doesn't matter, then it doesn't really matter who I sleep with, does it? Uh, Sex doesn't mean anything. It's only my body, which, of course, sounds very much like our modern mindset. Uh, This is what you might call hedonism, the unrestrained pursuit of sexual pleasure. But other people in the community drew a different kind of conclusion from this scorn of our physical bodies, not hedonism, but rather asceticism. That means our bodies are not only inferior, but they're actually kind of bad. You see, they're holding us back Uh, So if you really want to be a spiritual person, then you need to subjugate your body. Uh, You need to maybe even beat it down a little bit. You certainly need to enforce a lot of discipline and control. So abstain from any kind of pleasure. Most of all, sexual pleasure. Even in marriage, they were saying. Or even better, abstain from getting married at all. That's what's behind this slogan. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The super spiritually mature should avoid sex. The super spiritually mature should avoid marriage, to which the Apostle Paul responds, no. God raised Christ's body, and he's going to raise yours too. Don't you know your bodies matter? You are your bodies, and not just your souls. Your bodies matter, and what you do in your physical bodies matter to God. So, verse 2, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. In other words, what's Paul's response to the Corinthians? Enjoy sex, embrace marriage. And then you might have noticed Paul goes on to speak to a few specific groups in the church 
about their respective relationship to marriage. And so first, Paul speaks to the unmarried and to widows in the community in verses 8 and 9. It is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Here, and possibly for the first time in history, you find the explicit teaching that singleness is good. We'll come back to this in a little bit. But you'll also notice he adds also in verse 9, if you're choosing between falling into sexual sin and marriage, well, choose marriage. And in verse 39, he clarifies that widows and widowers are free to remarry, but that their new spouse must belong to the Lord. Verse 39, Christians should marry Christians. Second, Paul addresses those who are married and who have become a follower of Christ, but their spouse hasn't. Does God then release you from your covenantal obligations to your spouse? Are you free, even in the name of Christ, just to depart from your obligations? Paul says, no, not at all. Verse 12, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. You need to notice, too, the way in which Paul addresses both a woman's situation and a man's situation equally, which would have been totally countercultural in that day. He's upholding the rights and the value of both genders equally here. You must not divorce her. Quite the contrary. Love her. Serve him. Your new faith in Jesus calls you to press in. Not bail out. Press in. Stay. You might have noticed that verse 15 also clarifies that if you find yourself in the terrible situation in which your unbelieving spouse abandons you, you love them. You fight for your marriage, but in that situation, ultimately, you are permitted to divorce. A third group, thirdly, Paul addresses married couples more broadly now in verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord, meaning he's drawing directly from the teaching of Jesus, A wife must not separate from, that's a word for divorce, from her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. But if you do, verse 11 tells us, understand that you must then remain unmarried. Why? Because that's how durable your spiritual bond really is in the covenant of marriage. We discount this all the time. It's invisible, and it certainly doesn't always match up with our emotions, but it's there, present, cementing us one to another, having taken our vows and sealed our covenant with the intimacy of sex. You can't just simply sever it, simply by verbal or even legal agreement. And so we have here this 
that the only situations that make divorce and remarriage permissible, according to Jesus in Matthew 5, 32, as well as according to verse 15 that we touched on a second ago, is gross sexual violation, such as adultery, or if your Christian spouse has fallen away from the faith and made the marriage covenant completely unlivable by abandonment or abuse. Paul goes through each of these groupings and their unique needs, and he's going from person to person and group by group, and there's lots of details there that we can talk about during Q&A that we must unpack in life and in community. But even as we, in these few moments, just even touch on these different marriage-related situations, I know it evokes a lot of emotions for a lot of us. I know that for many of you, these are deeply personal, not just theoretical, not just abstract principles, but personal situations, in many cases, deeply painful. So I do want to invite you, dear sister, dear brother, don't try to deal with these things on your own. Paul was writing about these things to a whole community of faith, which means he intends the responsibility of caring for one another in these situations to lie and rest on all of us, not just each of us individually. Don't isolate yourself. Speak with us. By that I mean not only our elders Steve and Yancey and myself, but also speak with one another because we, we want to walk with you. We want to work through this with you. We need to, as a community, to walk with each other together. There have been times when I personally, or we as a community, have not done this well, but we want to do better. We must do better for your sake, for Jesus' sake, and for his church's sake. But as we study this particular passage, I also want to make sure that we don't miss Paul's big picture point, his main point in this first part of the passage. You see, because as he speaks into each group and each scenario, he's actually building up to an overarching principle that finally emerges in verse 17. Let me read that. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them just as God has called them. In other words, whether you are married or single or widowed, it is possible to live fully and faithfully as a follower of Christ in every station of life. Remember, the Corinthians' problem was that they assumed that greater heights of spirituality or of maturity in Christ could be reached in one station of life more than another. Or they were assuming that those heights of spirituality were restricted more in one station of life than another, namely in marriage rather than singlehood. But this passage is super clear. God does not favor marriage over singleness. 
God does not pour out more meaning into family life over widowed life. He's not more present with people in Christ in singlehood than he is in marriage. He gives us grace to flourish spiritually in whatever situation that God has placed us. And that includes even if we're struggling in that situation in which he's placed us. And you know why it's so important for us to hear this? Here's why. Because so many of us live feeling like our singleness is blocking us from finally attaining personal fulfillment. Or so many of us are feeling like our our marriage is obstructing us from our chance to reach our true calling in life. Or, Or maybe we're avoiding marriage, or maybe we're idolizing marriage, because we're afraid that we're going to miss out on my true human potential otherwise. Or you're a widow and now you just can't even imagine life working anymore without your spouse. You see, we have this in our heart. My singleness is holding me back. My marriage is holding me back. My lack of a marriage is holding me back. My kids are holding me back. That last one's true. No, just kidding. (laughs) Here's the truth. Here is the truth. Whether you're single married, widowed. And even if you're in a complicated marriage or struggling in whatever station in life that God has placed you in, you can live faithfully as a follower of Jesus. You can even flourish. By God's grace, you can. What might change, friends, if you believe that today? What might change? What might it look like for you to live fully and faithfully in whatever place in life God's placed you, trusting in Jesus' ever-present grace? What might it look like for us as a community to embrace that and to believe that? And the Apostle Paul actually leads us to consider particularly the way in which we view and embrace singlehood as a community. Because the rest of the passage focuses on the topic of singleness. That's what we'll focus in the remainder of our time. Uh, From verse 25 through to the end, you might have noticed, Paul teaches us about singleness. He teaches us basically two things. Number one, singleness is good. And number two, singleness is a gift. It's good and it's a gift. Let's take a look. Singleness is good. is good. We already saw how Paul says that in verse 8. It is good to remain unmarried. You know, according to Stanley Hauerwas, a historian, Christianity was actually the very first religion ever to esteem adult singlehood as a legitimate and viable way of life. I mean, for Christians, how could we not... After all, in Christianity, its founder and the center of its faith, Jesus, was unmarried. Have you forgotten? And not just unmarried, but according to Scripture, also perfect. The fullness of humanity. 
Jesus, a single man, was the fulfillment of true and complete humanity. If this is true, how can Christians look down on singlehood? In the Christian faith, it's the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that defines us, not sex, not romance, not marital status. Though, of course, that's the way the surrounding culture in ancient Corinth was treating marriage. That's the way you actually became somebody. That's the way you secured wealth, status, your future. And even today in traditional communities and societies, even in including the Christian church, there is an embrace of those ideals that ends up completely shunning and setting aside singlehood. It's the least Christian thing there is with respect to station in life. Jesus was single. In verse 7, Paul reminds us, Paul, the greatest apostle there was, he was single too. It's not surprising in verse 7 that Paul places equal value on singleness as he does on marriage. He calls each of them a gift and a calling. He's clear that singleness is not God's second best. You know, that point is actually made pretty powerfully in verses 29 to 31, which is a little bit confusing. But there Paul reminds the Corinthians that the time is short, he says. And so he says at the end, also at verse 31, for this world in its present form is passing away. And what's going on? He's reminding the Corinthians that Jesus is coming back one day, and he still is. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he's actually going to usher in the, the new heavens and the new earth. The renewal of all things brought into its perfect form. And so Paul says, therefore... Life isn't all that it was meant to be and what it will one day be like when Christ returns. So, hold everything in this life with an open hand. Hold everything in this life with an open hand. Worldly sources of material security, open hand. Worldly sources of happiness, open hand. Even your marriage. Because... He says, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. And understand what he's doing is he's appealing to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 22 that tells us that even marriage itself is not forever. It, there's no marriage in heaven. It, marriage was always meant to be a temporary picture of the perfect loyal love shared between Christ and the church. So here's Paul's point. Don't treat marriage like it's ultimate. Don't treat marriage like it's everything. It's a great blessing, but it's not everything. Don't idolize your marriage. Don't idolize the prospect of marriage. Invest in it dearly, but hold it loosely. Because Jesus is the only spouse that can ever truly fulfill us, ever truly meet our needs. God's family right here is the only family that will ever satisfy our hearts. What does that mean for singlehood? It's not God's second best. In fact, have you noticed, singlehood is what's going to last for eternity. As we are in perfect, consummated relationship with Christ himself. Singleness isn't just a journey and marriage the ultimate destination. It's marriage that's temporary. Do you believe these things to be true? 
And Paul even teaches that in some circumstances, singleness is sometimes better. He refers in verse 26 to the present crisis that leads him to say, well, I think some of you ought to remain unmarried. I think that's going to be better. Most historians believe that Paul, in that language of present crisis, is referring to a famine that was going on in the Mediterranean region around 51 or 52 A.D., And so Paul is simply saying, given just the intense stresses and pressures that were going on in life, that some should actually opt not to get married, not to say breaking off your engagement, he says, not to say coming short on your commitments, but if you have the option not to move forward. Why? Well, here's the simple principle. Sometimes it's easier for single people to press through a period of crisis and distress then maybe a married couple might be able to do so because of their obligation to care for each other and maybe if they have children, their children. Paul's not calling this uh, scenario morally superior. He's just giving wisdom. It's very clear that he backs away here in making this an absolute rule that everyone must be single. But sometimes singlehood is actually better than, more fruitful than marriage itself. Singleness, friends, is good. What would change if you believed that singleness is good? Whether if it's your own or if it's someone else's. And consider this even as if you are married as you learn to honor those who are not in your station of life. Singleness is good. Secondly, The second principle and teaching that Paul gives us here is that singleness is a gift. I mean, look at how Paul describes singleness in verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now there he's comparing singleness and marriage, and in both cases he refers to them as a gift. A lot of people hear that and they immediately go to this line of thinking that identifies singleness with the gift of celibacy, which of course everyone's running the other way, maybe even praying, Lord, give me a gift, but not that one, right? But listen, let's understand what Paul is actually saying. The Apostle Paul uses this language of gift often across his letters, but even including in the letter to the Corinthian church. We see it most in chapter 12, where he talks about what we often call spiritual gifts. You see, for Paul, the language of gift is the unique way that you love other people best. The unique way that you serve other people most effectively. See, Paul is inviting you and me to see singleness as a unique mode of service, a unique way in which you are blessed, resourced to love other people in a way that no other person, no other type of person might be able to do. Paul points out that there are advantages in the single life, perhaps, that are worth noting. Advantages in doing the work of ministry of serving the Lord. In verse 32, he says this, An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, 
how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. Second half of verse 34, her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and in spirit. Paul says this in verse 28, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Paul is not diminishing marriage after all that he said about the glory of marriage, but he is being realistic about the priorities and the calling of married people. He's pointing out in the ways in which single people might have a certain kind, not necessarily more in quantity, but different in quality, kind of time and energy that can free you to serve other people. The way in which you can meet up with people, the way in which you have flexibility perhaps in parts of your schedule, the way in which you can devote yourself to unique needs that only another single person might be able to understand emotional struggles, practical struggles, relational struggles. Paul says this is a gift you have been given, a way in which you have been called to serve. And I've got to point out this is not the normal way that we think about singlehood. So the question needs to be raised. I invite you, if you are single, how will you use your singlehood to serve those around you? What are some unique practical ways in which you might be able to love people best, or at least better, precisely because you are unattached in marriage, precisely because you don't have children, precisely because you don't have those encumbrances, though they might be things you desire and might even be things that God gives you one day. But in this season, in this time, how are you going to steward what Paul calls a gift from God? He's given it to you. How will you steward it? It's important, of course, to acknowledge and recognize that Paul uses the same language for married people as well, right? The one has this gift, the another has that. Married people, same question for you, right? How are you going to use and steward your marriage as a mode of service to others? Because it's not just about you, is it? God did not just bring you together just to face each other, but arm in arm to face the world in love and good deeds. How will you see your marriage as a unique way in which you can love other people most fruitfully? Will you see your marriage not just as a possession for you to own, but rather as a gift for you to give to other people? This invites us to see the way in which this dynamic of marriage and singlehood can work itself out in community with mutuality and interdependency. Because, friends, we need each other. Now, we hear this again and again in the Apostle Paul talking about the gifts of the Spirit that an arm can't say, I don't need the leg, and an eye can't say, I don't need a nose. We'll get to that in chapter 12 of this letter. But how much that's still true, absolutely true, of singles and married people and widows, that we need each other. We need to support each other. There are unique ways in which we can serve each other. In fact, verse 17 points this out as well when he says, whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. 
That language assigned is this language of apportioning or distributing. He actually used it in chapter 3, verse 5, when he's talking about the gift that Apollos was to the church and the gift that Paul was to the church. He calls them co-workers in God's service working together. We are to be working together. Singles, how can you support marrieds and families? Marries, how can you support singles? Do you see one another in community? Do you see single people in your church, dear married couples and families? Do you see them? Do you love them? Or, or, do you subtly look down on them as people who you feel just have all this disposable time and energy with no real cares, not, not real cares in life that are worth giving some sympathy towards? I, I can articulate that because I confess I've felt that before. Do you subtly look down on married people, single friends, because you feel like all they care about is each other, and no one else, or all they care about is their kids and no one else. And I can articulate that because I confess having had that thought before as well. Uh, One Christian author, I think, gives us good wisdom when she says, push away the impulse to correct and judge and win the who has the more difficult life contest. Ask instead what's going on that's hard and then be prepared to listen. And not just in terms of meeting needs, but in terms of fostering friendships. Can we be intentional about building friendships that are across single people and married people, intentional about loving and befriending across what too often is a very common singles and marrieds divide in churches? I want to, based upon all of this, call our church to, 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 to break that dividing wall. Uh, to foster relationships in practical ways across married folks and singles. That might mean you going to the men's fellowship breakfast. That might mean you attending Lyft or maybe going to the women's retreat. It might be you being intentional in your conversations even after the end of this service that you're actually looking not just for your normal circle of friends but daring to build a relationship across a station of life not like your own. This is a unique challenge in a church like ours, right? Churches traditionally tend to center the lifestyle of married couples and families. That's the truth. It shouldn't be that way, but that is how churches often run. On the other hand, cities tend to center the lifestyle of single adults. And so sometimes as a city church, things get kind of confusing. I don't know what your experience has been so far in this church, in this particular family as a single person or as a married person. But I invite you together, all of us together, to explore this, to grow in maturity, knowing that Jesus is our true spouse and we all hold him together. He frees our grip from needing one station of life more than another too much or too deeply. He calls us to faithfulness and fullness of life in whatever station he's called you to for as long as he's called you to that and he's given you a gift, 
resources and his Holy Spirit out of which he calls you to serve those around you as a single person specifically, as a married person specifically, as a way of building up the body of Christ and a way of serving our world. What a vision. No one in the world talks like this except for this apostle and the scriptures that we have before us. What would it look like for us to live out this vision in this church for our good, for your good, and for our neighborhood indeed? Let's pray together. Jesus, we offer ourselves to you and ask that you would give us grace to just find maybe one area where we need to change our mindset or one area where we need to love differently Maybe one area where we need to look at ourselves in the mirror a little bit differently. But Jesus, align our lives with your word and give us life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.